Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast Live Edition. I'm your host, Harry Foku. I'm part of the Evolution Nordics Gaming Team here at Evolution. We're a community-led recruitment agency company in the UK, and we're dedicated to being most known to improving the recruitment experience. Uh, we're a team of 10, each with a distinct focus on disciplines from QA and data all the way to like interim CTOs and tech directors. And our main focus is freelance and contractors, which is where we exclusively recruit for. Um, for example, my focus is Unity Mobile Gaming, where, whereas Heather Nichols is your go-to for all things QA, product, and data. So if you're in need of some extra talent to cover parental leave, plug a senior skills gap, or looking to upskill your team, don't hesitate to reach out. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Today I'm joined by Yasin Hatiboglu, Senior Product Manager at Rovio. Yasin has been consistently posting pure gold on LinkedIn to data analysts across the globe. I've been a data analyst for over six years in the game industry with a specialty on deep dive analysis and deriving actionable insights and telling that story. Yasin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely. We'll start with Yasin. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What got you started? Yes, sure. Uh, hey, everyone. Thanks a lot for joining us. Really excited to be here. Um, so I'm Yasin. I'm 32. I live in Finland. I'm original from Turkey. And I've been a gamer since five, I guess, yeah, since five years old. My first game was Prince of Persia, uh, if you remember the game from floppy disks. Um, yeah, and that was my first uh, start. And then I played a lot of Atari console games when I was a child. So that's how I started, if you look at it, if you look back to the first steps. And um, as I grown older, I started playing a lot of Counter-Strike and um, Half-Life. I, I didn't have a computer at my place, so we would, with friends, we would go to internet cafes or cyber cafe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. So yeah, enjoyed a lot of LAN parties. Um, then in 2001, Max Payne came out and I've been the biggest fan, as all my friends know. <laughs> and I, when I moved here, I, I actually, I got the chance to work with developers of original game, uh, Max Payne, so it was amazing experience. So something I'm still proud of and still excites me. Um, yeah, so this is my how I started as a child. Going back to education side, uh, I have a degree, bachelor's degree in econometrics, and then I did my uh, master's in quantitative finance in, in Vienna University of Economics. So yeah, I left Turkey around 11 years ago for my master's education. So what really drive, drove that was, um, like I said, I was a huge fan of wild games. And um, so I was thinking like around 2010, like, okay, I study statistics and I do economics. I love games, but what do I do with my life in the future? I didn't have any plans. Then I thought, okay, maybe there is actually a field where I can do what I study, like do data, do economics. Then I thought, okay, I'm a huge fan of Valve. I love their game. And back then, Valve was already experimenting with um, some um, data research or more like economy, the economics. So I thought I, I would just send them an email. So I sent an email to uh, Gabe Newell, and he didn't reply, but he actually got it for he forwarded the email to someone who knows about these things. And you wouldn't believe how much valuable guidance and information I got from them. Okay. For several months, we were like yeah, emailing with each other. That was amazing. Then I was like, wow. So these guys are so, like, they're humble enough to reply back to a uh, fresh graduate. I wasn't, I was actually still at the university, not even a graduate. But yeah, it was really good. So I got a lot of motivation. Then I thought, okay, now maybe I need to make it to Europe. And uh, that's how I actually got to got my, uh, got into my master's program in Vienna. Unfortunately, back then Turkey wasn't this big with games. Like uh, that's why I I left. Maybe things could have been 
very uh, different maybe if it was uh, 12 years ago. But I'm really happy back in my country what's happening now with games. Uh, we have a lot of successful games. Uh, so I'm really proud. But yeah, now I'm a very happy Finnish uh, resident and I'm uh, soon uh, getting married here and hopefully... Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy in Finland. Um, but other than that, with the career, um, right after my graduation in Vienna, I started uh, working in a game development studio um, who worked as a, more like an external external uh, developer for publishers uh, called Sproing. So it was my first position in the games and I was doing data analysis. And after two years, then I started to realize, okay, maybe um, I want to leave Austria and by the way, my first project was actually as an external. I was working with uh, Robio. It was an Angry Birds game. Oh wow! Yeah, actually, I was hired. Close to... the circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now I made a full circle, and so yeah. Uh, then around five and a half years ago, I moved to um, I moved to Finland, and it was in November, very tough times. It was really not the best weather in Finland. Um, I moved here for uh, seriously digital entertainment you might know from best Fiend. so we did have really good amazing time uh at seriously i learned a lot um it was a life-changing experience i'm and i still miss those days um but unfortunately the company was shut down uh, as you might know five six months ago um then when we were informed about the uh, closure upcoming closure then i started looking for new positions in um finland then uh, the industry was very supportive here. Um, we got a lot of offers. We got a lot of offers from uh, the neighbor studios and Rovi was one of them. So I was actually interviewed for two positions, one data analyst, one product management. And I got actually offered for both, but then I taught um, product management, well, not PM uh, directly, but uh, more product uh, analysis was in my uh, like side recently in the, my last maybe one year so i thought hmm, like maybe i could give it a try so i did the interview did the assignments and it all went good i got uh, offers from both for both positions and i did a difficult decision and i left the data uh, path and yeah accepted the offer for the pm position and i've been there now for five and a half months and so far so good really good i'm really happy with the decision so yeah, that's how I started Rovio and how I ended up being a product manager after working in data, I don't know, after studying data for 10 years, after working in data for six, seven years. Yeah. I love the story because it shows it's like clearly you've put in some graph, but also it's just where things have naturally fallen as well. Like you send that initial email, then one thing led to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lovely. So let's move on to my first question then. So what are some key skills you believe are essential for success as a data analyst and a product manager? Yeah. Uh, so of course, like now PMs and analysts are needed uh, in a lot of industries, but let now that we are here as a game uh, context. So if you talk about the games context, um, I think the most important, according to me, uh, in my opinion, uh, the most important thing is to understand the needs of clients in this case are players and what the the needs of the business as well especially in in the case of um free to mo uh, free to free to play mobile games so basically it's just classic metric out of 100 players out of 100 installs maybe two three actual pays yeah. so you need to uh, have a strategy because your vision of like okay we want to keep the game um free for everyone but then we need to keep paying the rent how do we do that so to be able to do that you need to first engage your players keep your retain uh retain your players and then uh monetize them so you can be like okay i'll make the game super difficult and we will get uh unlock the highest um monetization potential but it doesn't work like that because we still need a lot of active players uh, once you keep them happy in the game, then you can monetize them. So um, that's the 
that's all about finding a good balance. If you make the game super difficult, no one will stay in the game. Some people will pay, but then they will drop off eventually. If you make the game super easy, you will have a lot of happy players. Uh, well, not necessarily. They might be just bored and leave. Um, but then you won't get any revenue. Then you can't run the business. You can't hire new people because the game um, development is all about growth. You need a lot of employees and you might need a lot of employees and grow the business. You need to build uh, new uh, features in the game. You need um, developers. So to pay the salaries basically, you need some income. And so it's all about finding a good balance. Yeah. Um, so this was the first thing. Another thing I really believe that helps me is um, in the last years, I've been practicing a lot of growth mindset, which is all about, um, well, in life, it means you might make mistakes, you might do good things. So if you do something great, that's cool. Uh, if you do something and it, if you fail, it's still good because then you know you just did something wrong. You can learn from it or some person around you might give you feedback. Hey, maybe you should have done this. If you are able to learn from those feedback or this constructive feedback, then um, that's the growth mindset. And if you can adopt it in work life, again, it's really great uh, because my job is for example, all about running um, experiments, A-B tests. Some of them we are very excited about, but they fail. But it's okay. Then it's all about, okay, we just tested this. And at least now we know this doesn't work. But if you make a mistake uh, in development, if you just don't learn from it, then you will do it again. So if you repeat the mistakes, then it's not really experience anymore. Because the experience was the first failure, in my opinion. If you do it multiple times, then... That's not very efficient. So yeah, definitely a PM, um, a PM should be able to uh, understand that failures are part of the process and uh, just continue um, where you uh, str struggle from and learn from your mistakes and uh, re remember your wins and keep doing what you did well. Also remember what you did wrong and remember the feedback and act on it. Um, and especially in terms of for data analysts and for PMs, um, when it comes to more technical side of the development, understanding data, understanding, um, understanding the like what is the most important KPI or metric. Well, Nick Hill just asked about actual metrics, so we will come to that. Uh, I I just want to I, I was just about to talk about it actually now about metrics. Uh, lifetime value is uh, in, a, in in our business it's the most important metric. So you um, like. We should be able to measure, okay, um, now we have this game that's free for everyone, optional to pay, but um, we also have costs, like we have to pay salaries, we pay for user acquisition. Is the game, is the business profitable basically? Yeah. Unfortunately, there is the art side of things, like we create this uh, beautiful game with a lot of uh, labor going into art development, all coding, but there's the reality, we need uh, uh, stable, profitable uh, revenue stream. So that all comes down to lifetime value. Uh, and that's basically uh, how much money do we get from active players and how much, how, how much, uh, what percentage of players are active every day. So it just comes down to this. So understanding lifetime value and whatever you develop for the game, it all comes down to lifetime value. So understanding that metric is the most important thing. And maybe one last thing I can also mention, um, being a PM is all about optimization. Like you always have some trade-off. So you might have a perfect uh, feature in mind, but then is it really worth uh, doing it? Uh, maybe it's just too much uh, development time and maybe the returns are not very clear. Um, then you might have, maybe, maybe you might, you might need to be uh, a bit diplomatic. Like uh, you, you might have a lot of different views in the uh, project. It's also important to be able to make decisions under conflict. So politics and conflicts are sometimes unavoidable and also a sign of, uh, it's a sign of like um, having a lot of different opinions in the team. So as a PM, you need to listen to everyone and um, have a kind of a democratic platform where you can discuss all the details. And also have maybe the data uh, as your kind of. I was just going to ask. Yeah, like like data can be. You need this data. Sorry. 
I was just going to ask, like, why would we need to argue if there's data? Is this for like which things to test? Yeah. Uh, so data is, I think, really important um, because PMs I know in the past and today uh, we run a lot of A/B test experiments. So thanks to data, um, I can see when I come up with a hypothesis, for example. I can just test that, right? So in science, that's how it goes. But I could also just, uh, before coming up with a very simple, like quick hypothesis, I can just do some pre-checks from data. Um, but I know SQL, I can do it myself. If I didn't, I would ask my um, teammates, uh, analysts, if they could help with checking some uh, hypothesis. It's definitely worth doing that. And um, just a second. Yeah, maybe let's get to questions in the end because it could have been difficult to follow. So yeah, we'll do the Q and A yeah. at the end. Feel yeah. free to. We will Q and A. Please ask questions, and we will get back to them. Uh, just so it doesn't seem like we are ignoring ignoring the questions. Yeah. So um, yeah, um, coming up with hypothesis hypothesis is great, but if you come up with a good hypothesis that's backed by the data, that that saves a lot of time, because you might sometimes some of the tests we run they take months, some of them take oh, weeks, okay. some take some just days. But imagine you, if you didn't do any checks and you just, if on like with a gut feeling, you started a hypothesis, like you start testing it, it will cost you one month. But if you actually checked some data, if you notice that there's actually no real business case, like the audience you want to target is actually just half a percent of your audience, then that's not going to really bring in simple terms, that's not really going to bring much money to the game. Uh, it's not going to uh, bring a lot of business value. So why even start that test? Right. Like I said, it could be a valuable test um, with the idea to validate something. But the business should be all about engage your players, uh, keep them happy. But then, then you will be able to keep the business happy, which means revenue. But then um, data will help you to come up with more educated business cases. So it's not like, okay, I want to test this 10 things. No, just test, test one thing. Um, but be sure that it's, there's a potential business case that might actually bring business value to the business. Next, next question then, Yasin. So yeah. like a particularly challenging project, maybe in the past, like yeah. you mentioned politics there, you mentioned a few things, like, can you describe a challenging project you worked on and how you like overcame those obstacles? Yeah. Um, maybe it's a bit. This is maybe something, um, yeah, I, that's something I still remember after years. Um, I was still an analyst back then, but we had a case where we had a very big IP, very su strong, successful IP, and then we soft launched a game that was kind of the continuation of the game. Okay. But it was very different. Like it was, for example, much easier, like simpler, easier game. And I was expected to figure out if this new game would uh, cannibalize the existing audience. Because we already have a game that works well. The other game was new, it was a soft launch. And the question was, okay, what will happen if our players um, figure out the other game, they install that one, and they stop playing the first game. Yeah. And then the lifetime value is lower, and you're like, oh, oh well, we just wasted a bunch of money. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so lifetime value is, for a game, the... Yes, most important metric. But then if you have a lot of like very correlated games uh, in your portfolio, if you believe players might switch from one to another, then that might be fine. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is the portfolio lifetime value for a player then. Like if you manage, if you manage to increase the overall lifetime value, uh, for example, for, uh, for Harry, and then that's fine. But uh, if your lifetime value overall decreased because you switch from that successful game to a smaller game, then that might not be good. So that that required a lot of thinking and that's something I strongly um, encourage um, studios to do. Like if they have games, it could be a sequel, it, it could be um, under one IP, you might have multiple games. So I think it's very important to explore how the players react when they switch one game from one game to another. Do they actually churn, like quit from the first game? Do they play both? And then how do you, how do, what kind of a cross-promotion strategy do you have? And when should you start doing cross-promo? So, for example, what we learned from that research was that 
it's actually not a good idea to cross promo right away because um, it's easy to detect players who will be very who will become very uh, engaged in a game. So let's say you are very engaged already with one game. Like, why should I show you the other game that's not even fully ready yet? Because yeah. that wait for it to mature. Yes, exactly. So while like once you are very engaged, then maybe that makes sense. But the first like honeymoon days, maybe not then. Um, then the again, it's all about the portfolio lifetime lifetime value per player. So let's not harm that. That's important. From a data perspective, quickly. So I'm assuming you can tell if someone's playing both games and like time spent on each game. Yeah. Like, how do you figure out if you are cannibalizing another project? Yeah. Um. Well, one simple way was, um. So all companies track players. Uh, they have user IDs per game, and um, there are device IDs as well. Like they are anonymized, but you can actually track these device IDs uh, across uh, different games. Then you can say, okay, like Harry um, has this, let's say, iPhone XE. Yeah. Model. I don't know. Uh, I can see that you are in our first game and in the second game, so I know it's the same player. Then I can join their data. Then I would... even after the changes with privacy stuff with Apple um this was done before so I don't want to say anything now so but it was before those changes yeah. it might be possible but yeah no I'm not, not sure confirmed. yeah it was like four or five years ago um but yeah uh, so one way is basically one could estimate what the LTV uh, progression would be for you and then what is my estimation for future for you but then you've installed other game then you start accumulating revenue from the other game. So then combine these two data and see, okay, like in total, am I outperforming the scenario where Harry's LTV would, would be higher if we didn't release a second game by considering your revenue from the second game? Yeah. Because maybe it's, maybe you're actually paying in that game, but maybe you are paying less than in the imaginary scenario where, where we didn't release a second game, but maybe LTV would be higher. So. That's why I'm suggesting strongly that studios check those um, and understand if they're actually cannibalized. Don't make that assumption that it's just going to be yeah. added on top or anything like that. Yeah. Like you need to take that into account. In this case, um, quality quantity might not be actually um, better than quality. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be great. I'm with you. All right, next question. Uh, so, how has your outlook evolved since you started? Uh, as a product manager, so I guess the last yeah. months. Yeah, uh, so I started as a product manager uh, five and a half months ago. That might sound not really long uh, compared to my six, seven years of analyst, analyst background, but I think my outlook overall changed so much. Um, maybe I can tell a very quick story about this. Um, so actually, my outlook started changing around two years ago. Um, I I applied to Supercell and we had really good like uh, stages. So I passed several stages, maybe five. So it was going well. Um, and I was told that the technical side was look looking really good. And I was, I was, of course, like more convinced that, okay, it's going to be nice. But then in, in the, I think one before the last round, I was rejected and the um, I got an amazing constructive, like really good feedback. Um, it was saying that I'm just too technical. Like I, I talk about only data and I talk about how, what kind of data problems I solved. And in none of these, I mentioned about business impact. Then it was the first time I was like, hmm, like, yes, but I'm a data analyst. But then I start thinking about it. Okay. Then I come to this, uh, road split. So. Will I be doing data for the sake of data or data for the sake of business? Then I noticed I've been doing data for the sake of data. Mm. So it was really nice and entertaining. And I discovered a lot of things back then, which I'm using now every day. So I definitely value this, uh, that past of my career. But then things changed a lot when I started doing data for business. So I would say I started that, um, journey like around two years ago and like luckily now i'm actually a pm who does that uh even like um like officially mm -hmm. so in the last if i say in the last two years 
yeah, the biggest change was doing data for business for the sake of business. And if I look back to last five months, um, my outlook has changed so that it's all about finding a balance. It's not all about data. Like it's not about being blindly being data driven. Data is there to help. Data is not your target. Target the is, variable. Yeah. Target is the business impact. It's keeping customers, the players happy. It's bringing enough revenue stream to keep your business running, to grow, scale the game. And how do you scale the game? You need to have a lot of creative videos. You need to collaborate with um, influencers. You need to create a lot of um, marketing performance campaigns, acquire players and all these costs. So yes, how, you need to understand how to uh, utilize that three, four person minority and keep the hundred percent happy. So it's all about balance. So my outlook is definitely now based on not data. It's based on business value and finding a balance between a lot of variables. I like it. And yeah, I mean, I've been guilty of this, like just doing things because it feels good and you feel like you're doing it well, but then you realize, wait, am I actually getting what the business needs? And then you realize, oh yeah, maybe, but like it's 1% of what I could be doing otherwise. I think just making sure you always have that reflection, right? Um, in terms of the metrics, just in terms of moving from, let's say, data for the sake of data to data in terms of business. Yeah. Yeah, I think we touched on this before, but I guess briefly, like what metrics are we talking about? Yeah, uh, like I said, definitely LTV. Um, LTV, yeah. And whichever metric you see online, they all are part of the equation of lifetime value. Uh, but yeah, it's very important to understand LTV, which is all about uh, how much revenue they get from active players and what uh, proportion players are active so it's all about that so why is activity important so we, we want to keep players active in the game and that's when you that, say active is that time spent and that's it or is that like time spent on around a period of time um that's really important but if you think it very simple terms so there is i would say the second maybe um the secondary most important metric is i would say retention so retention is all about did the players show up in uh, day one, like after installation in the next day? Did the players show up after 90 days after installation? So it's a kind of a binary thing. Actually. Yeah. Uh, did they come back or not? And when they come back, then how much time did they spend? How many sessions they play? So um, so it starts from LTV, one, uh, one step down, retention and monetization. And retention is all about showing up and also spending time and as you can see like the formula the formula the equation starts growing yeah. but touching all these variables they small by small like um affect the ltv but being able to increase ltv let's say by day 90 it will help you with user acquisition and you will grow your um, base and you will get more revenue so these small changes actually make a lot of difference. So yeah, we mentioned about LTV, we have the retention, of course, monetization, because uh, yes, it's nice to have a lot of happy players who are not too challenged by the game, but then there needs to be some challenge for, uh, that's required for- To have a trigger to- That's how you trigger the monetization usually. But at the same time, uh, when there are super easy games, players also get bored of it. Yeah. Uh, but then if you make it too difficult, then you will have no players left. Um, so yeah, it's all, again, a balance between our retention and monetization. And on the metric side, we usually talk about, um, you see a lot of monetization and retention here uh, online, but then you need to also understand that the understanding the game data is not about, it's not, it's not all about, um, like major, how to say it, uh, macro level KPIs. It's also about m micro level. For example, look at your level funnel. If you have a, a level-based, saga-based game. Um, how many players do you have left after playing 10 levels? How many players, how many times played the players fail level 10? How much resources were used in each of these levels? Because that's how we monetize, monetize these free-to-play games. Players receive some free, uh, let's say, gold. They need to spend this gold. And next time they fail, then you ask, okay, would you like to continue playing this level um, by purchasing, I don't know, plus 10 moves? Yeah. Then that's how we monetize. So it's all about 
when when we go to micro level, it's all about how difficult the levels are and how well the game was designed, how how well the level was was designed. Because we want to, to be able to boost the LTV, we need to basically uh, maximize the in-game resource usage. Usually, the simplest way is to make the game more difficult. But when you make the game difficult, then uh, churn will increase. So again, another uh, complex optimization problem. How can we increase the uh, resource sink, thus uh, increase revenues, but try to minimize the churn? So understanding the game design matters here. So it's one shouldn't assume that, okay, now that I understand retention and um, monetization, you can be a monetization master, but it doesn't mean that you know the game design and it doesn't mean that you can. Um, context is very important. Yeah, context. It's all about context. In our case, I pay a lot of, I invest a lot of time in understanding what makes a good level, what makes players churn, what makes players use the resources. It's all about that. Then LTV will follow anyway, because by doing this, you are improving your retention and monetization at the same time. So if you do that in an indirect way, then LTV will grow anyway. It's very important that, yes, follow the uh, macro level uh, KPIs, but don't forget the player experience on a micro level. Got it. Next question. Um, Can you discuss anything about like the future of product data at Brovia? Yeah. Uh, So if you checked the, maybe it was some weeks ago, we recently uh, released the annual report, I think some kind of financial report. Yeah. And there was, it was, uh, I mean, it's a public information. That's why I'm comfortable talking about, with talking about it. Um, yeah, we, we are really proud that Rovio has been getting really good at uh, live ops, for example. Um, so product improvements are important. Having a good core gameplay, for example. That's what I do at Rovio. I'm the product manager um, responsible for the core level content, basically the level um puzzle levels uh, experience in Dream Blast project. And Dream Blast is at the moment um, in our finished studio uh, of Rovio. It's, it's the biggest project. And we've been growing a lot recently. And thanks to the live ops approach we've been uh, trying in the last, um, well, recently, we've been very successful with it. And um, we have a dedicated team of like four live ops um, features. A very skilled team, and they've been very successful. We have really well-performing uh, live ops um, events. Players are very happy, very engaged, and like I said, it's all about engagement. They are happy, and we are happy to see that. But plus, we are happy to see that it's helping the business to grow as well. So, if you look at the near future, I would say keep an eye on Rovio and um, Special Dream Blast, my project. Uh, we have really exciting things about the live upside and already now like we we have really good uh, events going on so i'm really happy about that um other than that on my end i'm doing the like i said um i'm responsible for the core level uh, performance so i'm me and my team we are um investing a lot of time into how can we make the level gameplay experience better for players how can we keep them in the game more um how can we of course uh, monetize these levels, but it's all about first, how do we make sure that they don't get sick of these levels and leave the game? Because that's the first thing we want to avoid. And like I said, if we do this, then the rest will follow. Yeah. All right. Uh, in terms of being data-driven, like why do you think it's important that a product manager is data-driven? Yeah. Um, I think we, I think I touched this earlier, but yeah, like I said, yeah, I think it's all about, um, PMs. If, if a PM is not very maybe data-driven uh, or informed or data-backed um, decisions, like I said, they might come up with a lot of hypotheses and they might want to test all of them. Again, if you have the um, if you have the budget to do that, if you have a lot of active users, maybe that's fine. But then if we are data-driven or if we trust the data enough, we can also use that existing data to understand the player psychology and maybe that all the answers some of the questions or if it's not enough then maybe it might help us to come up with a more educated hypothesis to test rather than yeah it will save time 
rather than testing 10 things. We test just two things actually that covers everything. So um, yeah, it's definitely important that, that the um, PM cares about data. Fantastic. In terms of, I guess, staying up to date, the industry is constantly evolving, got AI happening on a top series of dabbling with that when it comes to data and just in general. So I wanted to ask you, like, how do you stay innovative and continuing to like produce like successful, pro successful products? Yeah. Now that you mentioned the AI, I want to, um, touch Get the, to the juicy part. Point. Yes. Um, I think it's very, it's really, um, good that this generative AI technology has been growing. I've been using SQL for many years, but, um, it still helps me to use, like I've been of course Googling a lot, but now with ChatGPT, it's actually solving a lot of problems. Then I got to the conclusion that if a PM wants to learn SQL, so they can do their own simple research maybe, but they just don't have time, please use ChatGPT and ask your question in a human understandable way. And it's really good at actually converting, translating that human readable question to SQL script. So please do it. It will, be, I'm sure the analysts around you will be happy as well because they're already busy. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, um, I highly recommend PMs or any other developer or producers in the team that they do also some self-research. Translating a hypothesis into SQL code, just so I'm following. Yes. Uh, so you hit a database, but you just need to know the language to kind of write the code and, but it's not super straightforward to do that. So usually that's why. Uh, analysts are asked about this, but when you say, when you go to chat GPT and say, okay, I want the SQL query for the following statement or question, and it's actually really successful at translating it. Sorry. I definitely, uh, recommend doing that. So that's exciting times. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Get back to the question. Yeah. My, what I do is, um, I'm a fan of the intelligence platforms, uh, market intelligence platforms, um, where you can follow, where you have these, uh, deconstruction of games or game features or events. My favorite one is actually game refiner. I've been using it a lot. Um, that, that way I get alerts, for example, like which, what kind of new events are, uh, happening in the, in so other just like a newsletter or is this, I'm just having a look. It's also a self-service platform where you can say, okay. I want to compare, I don't know, Dream Blast with best schemes. What are the common things? What are the differences? What are the potential revenue drivers? Because it's simply impossible to play all these games, like there are yeah. thousands of puzzle games. But thanks to these kind of tools, it's very uh, easy to summarize and find out, okay, what, what, what might we be missing here? So I may, um, I, so I use a lot of these, a lot of these, um, platforms. But other than that, uh, if you can get some kind of, like you said, uh, some newsletters, so, or reports, um, these are great. And also one thing that might help, um, and I do it with my team as well, that helps a lot to sit down with your team members and have the construction sessions, like pick a genre, pick a game and understand what makes this game well, uh, or what makes this game better than ours. And I hear, I'm not saying copy paste, um, features because when you do that you are basically copying something that's already there and for a different context yeah um it might not just fit your game and but you might just see what they do and you might add improve on it so the more uncorrelated you are with some existing product the more chances you have that you will be success more successful so it's really important to uh, keep your competitors close um yeah, these also following other competitors help us to basically detect what is the next big thing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the Q and A, just kind of like an advice, basically, you mentioned your story and how you became the product manager at Rovio. So what advice would you give to someone getting into data and product management? Yeah. Um, well, if you're not PM yet, all of the start understanding the business constraints, uh, and how you can bring business value. Can they do so that with self-research? Sorry? Can they do that on their own? Like, is there something specific yes, they should uh, do? For example, when I was a data analyst, I really wish now, um, all of the six, seven years ago, I was more thinking about, I think back then I was doing it more to understand the player psychology, uh, which was fun, but I wasn't really thinking a lot about 
okay, how can I translate this insight to drive more engagement, to keep players more in the game, or to drive higher monetization? So don't do what I did, kind of incomplete. Yes, do the research like I did, but also continue and bring these insights to your team and um, discuss with them how can we use this information. And also, before you start an analysis, ask yourself, what will I do with this information? Yeah. So that's important. Not uh, with the end in mind. Yeah. The end is business, just so you can keep exactly. doing it. Yeah. Also, uh, always have this mindset of the deconstructor. When you play a game, try to understand what keeps you in that game. And how can you have the same vibe in your game, like the same mechanism of that brings you back to that game. So understanding that is important and... Definitely, if you want to become a PM, which means being a very business productive person, do your work um, by thinking, like, if you're a data analyst, don't do data for the sake of data. Do data for the sake of product and business. Mm -hmm. Other than that, um, understand, like, what makes these games fun, but at the same time profitable. Uh, you might come up with a super fun feature, but it will not, maybe... Um, generate an additional um, business value. So, I visit retention going to lead to business value. Uh, retention is definitely something that that contributes to business value, because then you have more players active, and assuming that they that and players keep spending on average the same, that means you have more of these players. So, retention is one of the uh, two pillars of the uh, lifetime value. But if you do something that's only fun and it costs you so much time that um, if it's a simple thing to do, do it. But if it will take you months of development, like cycles of uh, development, and in the end, when you think about the cost you made and what, what this feature will bring you in lifetime, think about that as well. There must be a way to like equate retention to business value. So I guess if you have yeah. a guess of maybe this increases retention by 10%, then you can, I guess, make that argument whether we should do the feature or not. It's hard to guess. Yes, uh, it's hard to guess, but uh, usually when we design A-B tests, then we say, okay, with this test you are working on, what will this affect? Is it retention, monetization, or level difficulty? Then, yeah, it's very important to first understand which metrics will be affected and try to, of course, guess by what margin these might be affected. Because if it's very simple, then maybe it's not even worth doing it. Yeah. Because there might be out there a better project to do work on. It's always opportunity cost. You could be doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, if you're not a PM yet, um, maybe you can already start thinking about, okay, how can I be more empathetic and forward thinking? Mm -hmm. I think being an empathetic person helps a lot because as a PM, you want to bring more joy to players. Then you need to understand, okay, how would players feel if we did this? So that's... Um, Having the empathy is a, not a skill, but like a, I think it's an important value that one might work on. And forward thinking, being forward thinker is important because when you do a change, always again think about, okay, in the short term it might look good, but in the long run, what's going to happen? Uh, again, LTV is a very long process. What will happen the lifetime value in five years? You want that to be positive. So a short-sighted person could make the game super difficult and yes you will have a lot of re a mon mo monetary return in short term but then you will quit and then oh, oh your business is gone yes your retention will take a so big hit that um after maybe one month you will be actually over mm -hmm. yeah yeah so yeah and definitely start accepting start adopting a mindset where you accept feedback ask for feedback from um, from your colleagues, your managers, and um, even players. Like um, it's it's quite common that the developers contact uh, uh, players, and they ask their for their opinions and some preset kind of service. So it's really important that you ask around uh, about your work, about your product, and learn from that and um, act on it, grow on it. So again, all about growth mindset. Except I think one good thing that stuck with me is if you can make your manager's job easier and easier, then that gets you closer and closer to actually being good at his job or their job. 
uh, because if you're knowing what they're trying to get, like what their, I guess, goals and KPIs are, then you can just try to benefit. Then obviously you try to get their men mindset within their manager's mindset. And I think eventually you just become more business minded. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Uh, so we move to the Q&A section. So right. I see a bunch of questions here. So I'm going to go historically. And Yassin, if we could do some brief answers, that would be good. That way we can see how many we can go through. Um, but if you don't mind, we can start with Cero Mercer. So on an average day, what does it look like? How do you structure and prioritize it? Mm-hmm. Um, short answer. I I have a um, team where, I, where we work together for the level for example, level performance mostly. And there I every day check what is in my backlog. What A-B tests do we have live? I check. Um, the first thing I do at work is to check the active A-B test results, um, how they are going. And if I have some projects, some self-research projects, then I get to SQL and I write actually a lot of SQL every day. These help me to um, come up with more hypotheses or if I some if I have some a hypothesis already, then it helps me to validate, okay, is there a business case? Is it even worth um, investing this time to A-B test these? Uh, structuring and prioritization. Prioritization is usually done by, um, like I said, there's always a business uh, uh, value that we want to target, but then it's also about the constraints we have. Do we have um, enough resources? Do we have enough players also? Um, then based on that, we prioritize by effort versus impact. Mm-hmm. That's a very simple way to do it. And yeah, I, on the productivity side, to structure and prioritize my work, I use Jira and Trello. For on the company level, we use Jira, but I personally, I have my own backlog uh, for like daily things. Yeah. Uh, I use Trello. And I use timelines and try to understand, okay, what is the highest priority right now, given its potential impact. Got it. Lovely. Over to Danica's question. So, who is the vision holder of the game in your company so how does that work with you like um again a short answer would be in my project our project is actually independent um what i've understood so far is all projects at rovio is uh, are uh, independent so of course we have some high level vision in the company uh, but they don't really affect directly our project so i would say it's us the employees in the project the team members got it uh, based on your experience, this is from Van Zhao. Sorry if I've ruined yeah. that. Um, tricks for a game launch or the ideal numbers indicate a successful launch. So I guess we, this is all relative, I imagine. Um, yeah. Um, really good question. Um, in my experience, yeah, I would say definitely tutorial funnel. Um, check what's mm. the first 10 minutes. Usually, let's say on average in the industry, uh, day one retention, the comeback ratio is around. 40% or 30%. Well, nowadays, yeah, around 30, 35%. Um, you lose that 65% already in this probably 10 minutes. So try to understand. Did they, did they leave uh, just on the first 10 seconds? So if they did, it could be because of a technical issue. Did they leave in the first one minute? It's probably unavoidable because they probably noticed that the game is not for them. Did they leave after playing 10 levels? It could be because the level was too difficult. Then they, they got stuck on it. So um, after the first day, things get to a very macro level. So you don't need to dive into this uh, like minute kind of interval. But the first day is so important. So for a soft launch uh, game, uh, for a game that's in soft launch, that's very important that you understand what's happening in the first 10 minutes. Um, try to understand and try to fix that. Make sure that there are no technical issues. The loading times are low. Um, and... If you are asking how how should we be sure that like whether we can go for launch, if you are sure that you have a good retention base, and if you are sure that the game is in a condition where you will be at a lot of live ops and monetization opportunities without harming your retention, then um, I think if you follow, um, for example, if you run some campaigns, what is the raw how does the ROAS look like? Do you think it will be profitable? Even if not now. Do you believe that given your trend during the development, um, do you think it will be profitable soon? So I would say then launch. I mean, it's easy for me to say. I don't yeah. know. Uh, Yasin, just time sensitive here um, in case you have a hard cutoff in five minutes. So I think I would let you decide 
Uh, which questions do you answer? Okay. So just in terms of the chat, is there any specific questions? And I can just highlight them. Yeah. So I'm not sure if we can get through all of them. Yeah. Let me quickly. Yeah. I should ask about how the gaming product management is different from usual fintech e-commerce. Oh, um, yeah. That I'm actually not sure. I just want to say I can't answer, but I just want to say I don't know the answer. Fair. Okay. Um, yeah. Trupti asked about what parameters do you usually use to test new features before go live. Um, if you are talking about soft launch, um, I, in my experience, we A-B tested this, but usually you are able to only detect if the new feature affected the retention, because retention is, is rather easier um, metric to validate even if you have several thousand players, but then it's difficult to measure. Like even in a live game where you have a million players, it's usually very difficult to measure a monetary change. So I would say retention um, is A-B testing that feature. And, and if if you mean by before going live, um, if it's, let's say, if it's possible to A-B test, yeah, definitely A-B test and then release. That's what we have been doing in the product I worked at. How deeply are you involved in the game creation process itself? Um, not much so far. Um, I'm because usually I'm involved in. When I was an analyst, I was involved in soft launch and in after global launch. And right now, I work on an existing game, but we create features. Um, I so what I do is to come up with sensible like data backed um, decisions and features or designs. That's how I help. Yeah. Um. Amal asked about Rovio. Um, yeah, I think you already provided a good picture. Like, <laughs> we have game design, level design, product managers, and we have, yeah, clients, backend developers. So I would say it's like an average studio. Okay. Nikhil asked about how do you approach user research and feedback gathering for your products? Yeah, um, at Rovio, we have a dedicated user research team. So they actually, uh, conduct a lot of research on that. So it's also in my past experience, like I've noticed some companies actually care a lot of, a lot about user research, not only uh, data-driven research. By actual speaking to them. Yeah, they speak to them, they make surveys and understand, okay, there are like actually four different types of players who play our games and how can we make the game better for all of them uh, at the same time. So usually there's no one-size-fits-all solution, but maybe in that sense, segmentation is an interesting approach. For anyone tuning in, we're just going through the questions in the chat, by the way. Sorry? I was just saying, for anyone listening to this, we're just going through the questions in the chat. Right. Yeah. Um, what type of decisions do you take in your day-to-day -day or quarterly workflow? Um, it's usually about what do we do next and what do we do, but what do we potentially do next? Will it bring um, enough business value that is it even worth doing? If we do it, okay, how do we prioritize it? Then we think about probably we would do an experiment with that. Uh, what is our hypothesis? Uh, with the hypothesis, which metrics do we believe? And I got an error. Just sorry, just a second. I lost the questions actually. Can't see any questions anymore. No. Okay, we start showing some. And... Yeah, maybe you can continue. Yeah, you just tell me if you cannot answer a certain question. Yeah. So we've got Taib here. What would you consider a good ratio for resource rewards, resource requirements to have a balance of it, both in difficulty and a monetization opportunity? Probably a lot of context here that is important, but any insight? There's no golden ratio. Uh, I would say it's all about testing. Depends on genre, depends on the audience. But I would say that if you don't provide any rewards, then players don't have this kind of, but if there are no rewards, I'm talking about extreme cases. If there are no rewards, players don't know what it feels like to use this um, in-game currency, which you actually sell in the store with money. Mm -hmm. So it's important to give it for free initially, the rewards and get them to paste it. And then they will probably be like, okay, this is how it's happened in the past. So I might as well just purchase it next time. Yeah. But if you give a lot of rewards, then players will consume all of them, but they'll be like, okay, next time I will get more anyway for free. So why should I even purchase? So I would say that that's also a question that I don't have the answer to because um, every game will have its own uh, gold kind of like sweet spot. I would definitely suggest A-B testing it. 
the cost and the rewards separately. Got it. Uh, do you use any third-party tools? This is from Zero to understand gather metrics. I think you mentioned game refinery, but that's more for just more for uh, game competition insights. Yeah. If you are asking in-game met like in, in for our games, well, for the past experience, I can talk about maybe. Um, I I really like and but. I I haven't been an analyst for five months and I would forget all these. <laughs> the things I the platforms I use a lot was for example Periscope. Um, that's a platform where you can write very easily some SQL queries. Mm -hmm. And Tableau was really good. And if you are a PM, for example, and if you don't know how to use SQL, a self very nice self service tool is actually Amplitude. 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 Uh, Amplitude. Yeah. So there's a place where you can just click and choose things. So. I remember in the past, um, a lot of non-analyst people just use that uh, to analyze, actually. Good stuff. Yeah. In terms of analysis paralysis, any tips from Danica? So we have so much data and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, yes. It's a situation of don't do what I did. I also, when I was at the university, when I was writing my thesis, I used, I did this mistake where I was like, okay, I will decide what I will do with my work or with my thesis once i dig into data enough no don't do it because then you will get lost because you will always find something more exciting so i think the best way to avoid that is this like not doing it um come up with a come up with a good concrete hypothesis and then check if this hypothesis will have a good uh, business case like will it actually turn into a um, potentially uplift in the game at scale and if yes then do research based on that but don't I would say one shouldn't just um, get into database and start searching. Okay, like what should I analyze today? Maybe I will find something that's helpful. But usually that that causes the paralysis. At least it it did for me. Correct. Um, this one's I'm curious on as well. Um, art contribution. So, can you measure like how art affects data, like lifetime value? Yeah, there's uh, unfortunately not on the first release because you released let's say. A new feature yeah. as it is it contains a lot of things like there's a code there's the art yeah. but then uh one can do this exactly like for example a reskin or um an alternative art style well one can definitely a b test it and um that's something i have experienced in my career definitely and it might actually change the revenue so even if not art directly or like ui changes for example definitely affect a lot but probably just art, pure art as well. Why not? So one could just A-B test. Nice. How about, let's look at some questions here. How do you weigh, from Benjin, how do you weigh community feedback versus the player behavior? So you'll have what they're verbally saying, but actually what they're doing as well. And what happens if they're a bit different? Yeah, uh, I think we just need to accept that it's very normal that it's different. Um, for example, if you see these comments in a, in a community page, let's say on Facebook, it means this player is already more engaged than others. Okay. Because they have those glasses on. Yeah. So it's this player already shows that, uh, that like, uh, they're special basically. But then if you look at an average behavior on, from data, um, just for this reason, because in one, you take everyone in one case, there is one player who made it to your, who searched for your game on Facebook and find your um, community page. So I would say don't don't ignore, uh, even if that's one person, take the feedback and maybe ask your neighbor analyst, hey, like uh, we hear that players are getting stuck in this level or they don't like this certain mechanic. Can you please check the level performance of uh, these levels that have this mechanic? Because it sounds like it's annoying. So yeah, um, I would say Higher sample size is usually better. So if you see a lot of people complaining about the same thing in your Facebook page, definitely check it. But even if sometimes even one person feedback actually matters. So sounds useful for like a trigger to look at the data, like where otherwise you might not know to check in the first place. And usually when you're in the game development, you are usually blind to very simple problems in your game. You are usually uh, more concerned about more advanced things but if you get this um feedback from one player they pro probably have a well point out it's worth checking lovely 
in terms of to add one more thing um of course there will be a lot of feedback on the community that might say this game is um uh, like i see a lot of comments like this game is um uh, like money rip off like they just want our money i mean i think all the businesses want your money uh in this case we we are just it's a it's a free game basically so it's good to care about players and understand what they ask, what they struggle with, and try to take that feedback. Again, growth mindset, take that feedback, but don't do something crazy with your game just because of one or few feedback. It's all with balance, I think. All about balance, yeah. I think, I think, I mean, I work a lot with the mobile game studios, and I think as long as you're not doing exploitative stuff, which I think is only a couple I can name top of my head where they make it like really easy to spend money kind of thing, as long as you're doing that, I think it's all makes sense. Like you want to make sure the retention is as high as possible, which is what players want, but also people are spending money so that way you can fund a better game in the future. Exactly. Hundred percent. Um final question then. Uh which stage from Emite, which stage of the game most casual game makes the most monetization? So I guess I'm thinking more on the when you're skipping a level, buying skins. And based on my experience again um if it's like a rpg style game usually it's uh it's usually what is called like power-ups or um upgrading basically the upgrade or character the permanent or the the per level stuff uh permanent okay the permanent stuff are the like i i for example when i spend money i do like get rid of ads forever or double rewards forever and i'm a sucker for those stuff uh, sometimes the season pass, but like I, I personally don't like doing consumables. Uh, but this was based on my experience some years ago. So mm -hmm. in the last five years, I've been working on puzzle games, and in that definitely, um, and given that puzzle games are casual games, I would say yeah, most of the monetization comes from indirectly. It comes from uh, when players run out of moves. Yeah, let's say twenty moves in a level, you run out of it all of them and you didn't complete the level yet then it asks okay do you want to continue or not then you say i want to continue but then you need to use your in-game currency what about ads yeah. is that a big part nowadays or is that ads one... are, well it's depending on the game strategy some i know games that are like 90 percent ads 10 percent still uh, even after the recent changes well, i guess the recent market like is less money spent on ads from my understanding nowadays yes uh with hyper casual i think it was like that uh with casual games which I know better, I would say uh, a very like big majority of income is from uh, in-app purchases and revenue. In ad revenue is usually the minority. It's like YouTube influencers. Ads is nice, but like most of their money is from sponsorships or selling stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's a nice to have. Yeah, yeah. Got it. It's also a balance. Do you want the in-app purchases or ad? Because uh, for in-app purchases, you need to actually spend. You need to. Uh, like 30% of the money goes to, for example, Apple and Android. Mm. But for ads, it's much less. So it's, again, finding the good balance. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Uh, lovely. Any questions that you see, Yasin, or do you still not? I don't see any questions. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Um, let's do one more. Um, this is from Christian. What features of product game manager can be incorporated to the 80-20 principle in terms of analysis? So I'm thinking like 80-20, like, you know, twenty percent of our features get eighty percent of the revenue. I guess for yeah, I would say um, so. If you think from the minimal changes and maximum returns perspective, I would say um, it's definitely some small UI improvements. And think about how um, figuring out if if you see some feedback about some certain level mechanics are not good or some balancing is off. If these are things you can change with some I know some simple code, maybe those will be good. But simple things that we change, I changed in in the past and worked very well was, for example, simple UI changes and then increasing or decreasing the game speed based on uh, how how your speed is with the game. Like if you have a mobile um, casual puzzle game that's like taking I don't know ten minutes per round. Nowadays the average is like one minute. Minutes. And what, like on Vampire Survivors, I 100% I it, bought the DLC 100% it, and I would have quit the game if I didn't unlock the hyper feature, which makes it twice as fast. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm a sucker for those things. 
So that that's a change, for example. Basically, just go to your code and increase animation speed. It's like 10 minutes, maybe. And um, you might see 1% to 2% revenue uplift. And now you might think it's 1% high. Definitely. Anything counts. 100%. Uh, lovely. Um, Yasin, I'll give you the floor if you want to kind of mention anything, I guess, uh, before we finish off. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for, for joining. And thanks, Harry, for um hosting and in, inviting me well if anyone has questions feel free to write me on linkedin um and i'm happy to answer whenever i can prepare for like barrage yeah also follow uh for my content i i'm happy to uh post more and maybe in the future i can do kind of a live cast like this where i can talk more technical stuff so yeah no it's my pleasure i think really appreciate it but yeah thank you everyone at home for listening